Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John uh, chapter 4. We're gonna, that's where we're going to be this morning. And you have some notes in your worship folder, so I invite you to take those as well. Um, I want to say thank you to Nathan for preaching last Sunday and Zach for leading worship. Uh, I got to listen to it several times as I led a discussion on the sermon last Sunday, and so it was, he did a great job. Uh, Kathy and I had a great time in, in Wheaton uh, last weekend. It was really incredible uh, seeing some folks that I recognized right away and other folks that I'd look at them and I'd look at their name tag and then I'd go, oh, it's you. Um, and I realized they were doing the same thing with me. Um, you know, I uh, had, uh, I mean, like most of my graduating class, long hair, and I had a beard when we graduated. And um, <clears throat> now I'm longing for hair. Um, but uh, it was really a fun time uh, seeing people that are involved in ministry. I got to see my roommate who was a missionary in Morocco for 14 years and another friend who was a missionary in Egypt for 20 years. And Guys who are just doing great, and gals who are doing great things for the kingdom of God um, all over the world and still are. So it was really fun to be with them. <clears throat> um, we're in this series on apologetics that we started after Easter. And <clears throat> apologetics is not apologizing for our faith, as we've talked about, but it's giving a defense. Uh, in fact, you might want to write the word defense up by the word apologetics at the top because that's really what apologetics is. It helps us be, uh, be more, more sure of our own faith, if you will, as we study apologetics. Uh, we can learn uh, what it is to, to, to answer a person that has questions, and, and that helps us in the process. So we've already looked at a several, <clears throat> several questions. If God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? And is the Bible reliable? And last week, if God is so loving, then why does he send people to hell? This week, we're looking at the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Now, that question can be asked in a number of different ways. Someone might say, why is Christianity so narrow-minded uh, and intolerant of other religions? Or since all religions are basically the same, why does it matter what you believe? Or if three quarters of the world's population are other religions, why do you say that Christianity is the only religion? Um, in our culture today, saying that Jesus Christ is the only way to God might be one of the more offensive things that we can say. People take offense at that pretty easily. Um, at the, we're going to take a look at the first 10 verses of, of 1 John 4. And so to set it in the context at the top of your outline, you have this, that Jesus knew his, re, uh, John knew his readers were under attack from false teachers. And so he commands them to test those who claim to be communicating the truth. And he gives them reasons for doing this. And in the process, that helps us as well. So let's uh, follow along in your Bible as I read 1 John uh, chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 
You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is God's word. You know, I've talked with plenty of people, like I'm sure you have, and had discussions with them that say there are all these paths that lead up to God. Why is Christianity, why does Christianity say they're the only ones that are valid, the only one that's valid? Uh, When I start talking about the uniqueness of Christianity, people will say, you know, why is it so narrow-minded? Well, the narrow-mindedness is really what what was called religious exclusivism. That's the technical term, if you will. And there's a definition on on your outline. Religious exclusivism in opposition to religious pluralism, many paths to God, affirms that only one religion is true and that others opposed to it are false. If Christianity is true, then, for example, Islam is false, since its truth claims claims oppose the central doctrines of Christianity, such as the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection three days later. So if Christ said, I am the only way to God, and Buddha or anybody else says there is some other way to God, then either Christ is wrong and Buddha is right, or Christ is right and Buddha is wrong, or they're both wrong, but they can't both be right. Uh, It's the law of non-contradiction. So the first thing we see in this passage that that helps us to move towards what we are looking at is to test the spirits. That's what it says in verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So John is talking about religious teachers. So why test the spirits? Well, because every human will make something their ultimate concern. And false teachers, John says, have not made the right thing their ultimate concern. And false teachers, uh, John ends the previous chapter by talking about the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And then he transitions into chapter 4, and he talks about the unholy spirits of the false teachers. And what he's saying is a good word for us today. John is saying that supernatural, demonic spirits are experts in deception. Uh, It can look a lot like the real thing, but it can be a a deception. Uh, It's like what we would, how we would define a cult. A cult is a deviation from orthodoxy. But sometimes you can talk to someone who's a a member of a cult, uh, and it takes a while to figure out that they use a different way of defining words than we do. Sometimes people will say they're Christians, and and maybe they are, but we're told that we need to 
uh, closely examine every spiritual message we encounter. In Acts 17, chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 11, it says, Now the Bereans received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So if the Bereans did that with Paul, I hope that you do that with me. And I hope that all of us do that with any spiritual message that we get from anybody that we hear in our culture. Um, we, if there's somebody that is contradicting what the Bible says or that is explaining away what's in the Bible, <clears throat> then they are not, excuse me, then they're not from God. And that's the way that we test the spirits. Paul, so the Apostle Paul explained it in Ephesians 4.18, that unbelievers have no basis on which to evaluate uh, other teachings. And so they do whatever feels right. They do whatever suits their fancy, if you will. But as believers, we have the word of truth. And we have the spirit of God, the spirit of truth living in us. And so we can test what we hear by what is revealed in scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, test everything, Paul says. And so, and this is on your outline, in the history of the world, there have been a couple of main ways that people have tried to deal with this religious exclusivism, this narrowness that they blame us for. And so the first way is that they weaken religion or try to make it disappear altogether. Um, what they found out is that when you try to shut it down, it just makes it grow all the more rapidly. It was in the 1950s when missionaries got kicked out of China. And at that time, there were very few believers, only thousands of believers in this, in this big giant country with over a billion people. Uh, now, it numbers in the millions. Some people say as many possibly as 100 or 130 million believers in China. And it's still a small percentage of believers, but it's growing, and it's growing fast. Try to make Christian, Christianity disappear or, or weaken it, it won't succeed. Uh, but that's the way people without God think. <clears throat> the second strategy of the world is to deal, with, uh, to deal with this narrowness, is to tell people to keep religion private. It's on your outline. To keep religion private. That's where we're at here in America. Have your religion but keep it to yourself. And as a disciple of Jesus, our relationship with him will impact every area of our life. It, it can't but do that. That's, that's what's going to happen. Um, it was commentator William Barclay who said, the quote, you've got it on your outline, either your discipleship will destroy your secrecy or your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. When someone says keep your religion privately, what they're essentially saying is that you leave the views of truth and morality at the door. Uh, they're controversial. They're just going to cause conflict. So don't bring up what you believe. Don't bring up religion. So trying to make religion disappear won't work. Trying to keep it out of the public forum won't work either. So what 1 John gives us is four things that are unique and distinct about Christianity from all other religions, and how when we take them into our heart, when we understand the message that they're giving, then we'll see that that narrowness is actually allowing us to communicate God's love and God's grace in the best of ways. Um, and, and it's not just about conflict, but it's about bringing that peace into every relationship with we have, that we have. We're to be at peace even with our enemies. 
Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12. Um, so we're going to look at these, what makes it distinctive and unique, uh, what, what makes Christianity distinctive and unique. So remember that the goal of Christianity is always a personal relationship with God. Uh, that's why it, we have it. That's why it's there. It's not just to increase our knowledge. It's to change our lives. It's to, it's to make us into the image of Christ. And so the first thing we see, number one on your outline, is that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, verse two, this is how, we can, how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You see what it said there? Jesus has come, interestingly enough. It doesn't say he was born. It says he's come. And when Jesus says Jesus come, that means he was somewhere else before he came to this world. He, was, he existed before. He is God, the eternal son of God, God the son. But he was on earth and he was somewhere else. And that's an implicit claim that is made other places in 1 John and other places throughout the New Testament. Uh, that Jesus was there. Think of John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word then became flesh. Uh, every other religion says that it has as its founder a human, uh, but they're only a human. Christianity alone says that Jesus Christ was human, but he was also 100% God. One of the most critical verses that, uh, to, that identifies where Jesus identifies who he is. It's not on your outline, but I want you to write it down. It's not on your outline because I want you to write it down. And you should have this verse memorized is John chapter 14, verse six. John 14, verse six, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me. This is one of the most basic and important passages in all of scripture. And Jesus is saying he is the only way to the father. It's not us as Christians who make that claim. It is Jesus who says that he is the only way to the father. Uh, this idea is his. It's not ours. That's the truth. The nature of truth is that it's very narrow. Uh, if I say to you, this is a soda, you would say, no, it's water. I know that's not a soda. I recognize the bottle. It might be a liquid. It might be something you drink, but it's not a soda. And so we're very narrow about how we define truth. When you're in an airplane uh, and the pilot lands the plane, you want him to land on the runway, not on the roadway next to it. Very narrow about how that pilot should land the plane. You want him to land the plane, hopefully, right side up, not upside down. That would be a little uncomfortable. Um, you want him to land the plane when he's supposed to land it. Not one minute before, not one minute after. There are lots of, there's lots of aircraft out there, a lot of traffic in the sky. You want him to be, we want him, our pilot, when we fly, to be very narrow about what he does. That, that's the nature of truth. Um, so there are a lot of other places where Jesus claims to be God and does it in different ways. And what that's called is really a universal negative. In other words, Jesus, by saying this, has eliminated all other possible options by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Because he can do that, because he's God, he's man. The second truth that we have in this passage 
that's distinctive and unique about Christianity is that Jesus came in the flesh to redeem us. Think about that. He came in the flesh to purchase us back, to redeem us. Look at verse two again. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why is this important? Because this is another area where Christianity and biblical religion are, is so different from other religions. Other religions see the purpose of salvation to liberate you from the flesh, to escape the flesh. This is the problem that we're in the flesh and to escape it. And so many Eastern religions will say that the physical world is an illusion and you overcome it through a change in your consciousness. And in Western religions, we tend to say, well, the flesh is real, but it's bad. And through morality and spiritual experience, you can escape this and, and go to heaven where everything is gonna be perfect. Everything will be perfect in heaven, but it's not about that. Christianity says that at, at, when, at the coming of Christ, God's son received a body. And at the resurrection of Jesus, that the salvation is not an escape from the flesh, but it's to redeem it and to renew it, this physical, material world. And so God will rid the world of death. That's his promise. He will rid the world of disease and poverty and injustice. He will redeem what is broken about this world. I want to quote here a surprising source. I don't know if you know who Christopher Hitchens is, but he is an outspoken atheist who debates Christians and tries to prove there is no God. And he was having a question and answer time once and a pastor stood up and introduced himself as a pastor and said, you know, I don't really believe the Bible. I believe it's full of good stories. I don't believe that Jesus Christ really died for me. And before he went on, Christopher Hitchens said this, this atheist said this, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice, your sins are forgiven, you're not, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Wow. Out of the mouth of an atheist, I never thought I'd hear anything valuable come out of Christopher Hitchens' mouth. But that is correct. What he said is true. Uh, and so Jesus didn't just come to redeem us, but he came to redeem the world. And the question is, has he redeemed you? The third truth that this passage shows us about what is distinctive and unique in Christianity is that God is love. That's number three on your outline. This is how God showed his love among us, verse seven. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. In other religions, we're told that you have to perform in order to be saved. You have to perform the truth. You have to love your family. You have to love your neighbor. And if God sees you doing that, then God will bless you and save you and take you to heaven. That's not what the gospel says. That's not at all what the gospel says. The gospel says that, and this leads us right to the next point, that God saves by grace. 
We've said this many times. I'm going to say it again this morning, and you know it. Uh, all we need when we come to God is nothing. Absolutely nothing. But most people don't have that. Most people want to say, God, where are these problems going on in my life? Don't you see all the great things I'm doing for you? That's what we want to bring. We want to bring all the great things we're doing for God. And God says, there's nothing you can bring. In writing about the uniqueness of of Christianity, um, look, look at verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The grace of God flows from the love of God. Uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. I would highly recommend you reading that book. It's a great one. But he says in this book, what make, he asks, asks the question, what makes Christianity unique among the world's religions? That's easy, he says. It's grace. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Do you know that God's love for you is not conditioned on anything you do? In fact, it's in spite of what you do. It's in spite of our sin that he loves us. God's love, as this is what Nathan talked about last week, God's love cannot overlook or excuse sin as if it never happened. God in his love declares us guilty, but then he provides a way out to pay for our sins, to wipe our sins away, to clear them. Romans 5.18 says that Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. That's our situation. That's where we're at. We're all condemned. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. And so Christ's sacrifice on the cross satisfies God's anger against our sin. So you have this on your outline. God comes and sacrificially pours himself out for the people who don't love him, who aren't good, who aren't loving one another. Jesus is not primarily, not mainly a teacher who comes and tells us the way we ought to live. Jesus is a savior who lives the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we deserve to die. In our place, so that non-lovers of him, non, uh, non-performers of the truth can be saved by his radical grace. That's what it is. Those are the four things that are unique about the Christian faith. We all love verses 7 and 8. Look at uh, 7 and 8 again. So, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not, who does not love does not know God because God is love. Non-Christians love to say, talk about this all the time. They love to talk about the love of God. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about Jesus. 
Let's talk about God and how loving he is. I want to, there's a lot of the scripture that a lot of the, of our culture leaves out. If they, if they kind of accept Christianity, they'll leave a lot out and they'll say, well, let's focus on, on how loving God is. He loves everybody. He created. It's all about love, right? We all go to heaven, right? Not what the Bible says. Um, when you receive Christ and trust him alone for your salvation, God gives us his Holy Spirit. Look at verse four. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We don't have to fear what Satan is doing out there because we have <clears throat> the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And when he enters us, it turns us into a minister to ministers of reconciliation. We're agents of God's grace in the world. Uh, and the world desperately needs this. And so how does he do this? Well, he does it like we've been talking about by his grace. The Bible says, and this is on your outline, you're not saved by your performance. If you're saved by what you do, that means automatically you have to be superior to everybody else. The gospel says that when you're not saved because you're not saved because you're wise and good, the gospel says you're not saved because you perform the truth and you, you, but we are saved because Jesus performed the truth for us. That's why we're saved. And you can't get his salvation unless you admit that you're not better than anybody else. You have to humble yourself before God. And so the second way that God turns us into agents of his grace is that we're sinners. This is on your outline. And we need grace. We need it. The gospel humbles us before people that we don't agree with, who don't believe the gospel. And it makes us realize that we're not better than they are, that, that we're beggars and, and we're just out trying to find bread. We can point them to where to find it, at the foot of the cross. But listen carefully to this. People, the gospel will teach us to respect all people. And so the, the, the narrowness isn't there. The, the way to God is narrow, but our arms are open for everyone. And then the third way that God turns us into an agent of grace and reconciliation is when we understand the role of the resurrection. The role of the resurrection. There are a lot of religions that say that this world doesn't matter. And so you can be a suicide bomber and blow yourself up and that's a good thing because it gets you to heaven immediately. You just wanna to get to heaven. They're absolutely sincere. How can you fault their sincerity? But they're wrong. And you can be sincere and you can be wrong. Uh, and that's the nature of truth. It, it, I don't know if you know the name Jim Marshall. Probably most of you don't know who that is, but he was a football player, a defensive end, who played for the Minnesota Vikings. And uh, he recovered a fumble, got turned around, ran like crazy, but he scored for the other team. He ran the wrong way. Totally sincere, but totally wrong. The Bible says that God is going to give us new heavens and a new earth. And the new heavens and the new earth are a place where poverty is gone, where disease is wiped out, where suffering, it's all gone. And so you think, okay, then it, it, is, is it okay for us to work for the good of this world to make it a better world? It is. 
It is okay to do that. There's this great verse in Jeremiah 29. You've got the reference on your outline where God says to the children of Israel, go into the pagan city of Babylon and work for its peace. Make the city of those wicked pagans a great city for you and for them to live in. When the gospel has changed our lives, it leads us to serve others and to make wherever we are a great place. And so we're motivated as we seek first the kingdom of God to be great neighbors and to be great family members and to be great uh, workers at our job, to do whatever we do for the glory of God. We work heartily as unto him. And that's what God will ultimately do in this world. Ultimately, he, this, the, the, all death will be gone. All poverty will be gone. All disease will be gone. It'll all be gone. Jesus alone says that he is the way to salvation. And that seems so exclusive. And yet the simple fact of history is that Christianity was so unique. It opened up its arms to anybody. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. And so the Greeks didn't mix rich and poor. But Christians did. The Jews never mixed race. But Christians do. Why would such an exclusive belief that Jesus Christ is God lead to the most inclusive, peace-loving humility, a humble behavior? Because if Jesus Christ is God, and if Jesus Christ and his church are the ultimate reality, this is why we're here, so the world can look at us and see something different and see the unity, and see the joy, and the love that we have for each other. By this, Jesus said, well, all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And God's goal for us is what? To make us like his son. And when the early Christians understood that ultimate reality, how could they be cruel to anyone? They couldn't be. And when Christ comes into your life, it changes you, it changes your heart. And then it changes your actions. It changes our relationship with God and our relationship with everyone else. And so if you believe the gospel of faith and then step out and take a risk by serving others, it's like what Barbara talked about. She took a risk and got out of her comfort zone with her, with her mom. And we get out of our comfort zone to tell the good news of Jesus to those around us. And if you're willing to do that, God will use you more powerfully than you ever imagined. If you don't believe the gospel, then consider believing it and becoming a part of, of, of what the world needs and fulfilling the purpose for which God created you, to have a relationship with him. I want to end it by looking again at verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, one of my uh, favorite professors at Wheaton was a man named Dr. Weber. Uh, Dr. Weber was on a flight one time and the man sitting next to him was a Hindu. And the Hindu saw Dr. Weber reading a Christian book and he said, are you religious? And they started talking about religion. And Dr. Weber said to this Hindu man, hey, could you sum up, give me kind of a one-liner that sums up your religion. And the man said, we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution. 
That was a summary to Dr. Weber from this Hindu man. And then the Hindu man said, okay, your turn. Give me a one-liner that sums up Christianity. And so you've got it on your outline. It's the last quote on the bottom. And Dr. Weber said this to him. He said, we're all part of the problem, but there's only one man who is the solution. His name is Jesus. So the question we come back to is this. Do you know him? Do you know him? Not just know about him. Do you know him in your life, in your heart? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this remarkable truth of the uniqueness of, of the Christian teaching that, that Jesus is the only way, but that leads us to true humility. That leads us to loving people who differ with us. We pray that you would help us to believe all of the gospel, not just what's easy. And maybe there are some here this morning who don't know you personally, and if that's you, would you just simply pray this prayer? Lord Jesus, I need you. Come into my life by your Holy Spirit. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Um, so this is from Romans 15, and the Apostle Paul says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him and that you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. And please don't leave without introducing yourself to a couple people around you. Thanks.